Good evening, and welcome to the New York Historical Society. I am Pam Schaffler, Chair of the Board of New York Historical, and it's my pleasure to welcome you all here this evening in our spectacular Robert H. Smith Auditorium. I hope that you've had the opportunity. If you haven't yet, you'll have to come back to see our fabulous exhibition called Chinese American Exclusion Inclusion. It's right outside the door, and it tells the fascinating story of Chinese immigration and uh, what makes an American is the question that we've posed within that exhibition that you can give some thought to. I think you've also probably been unable to avoid the uh, show that opened on Friday, which is right outside the door, entitled Holiday Express Toys and Trains from the Journey Collection. We are having some small track changes, as you can see, but remember, we're actually closed today, so nobody uh, has missed anything. If you haven't seen that in action, you'll have to come back for that as well. And on our second floor, there's a wonderful show uh, by Annie Leibovitz entitled Pilgrimage, and this gifted photographer has um, taken a journey across the United States and uh, shared with us photographs that we think uh, you will find very exciting. So there's so much to see. If you haven't, come back. And also, if you have not had a chance to become a member, uh, please do. You can pick up a brochure outside, and then you can be part of all these wonderful exhibitions and programs. Before going any further, let me just um, welcome all the members of our Chairman's Council, as well as our members uh, in this auditorium. And I specifically would like to acknowledge the Vice Chair of the Board of the uh, Newark Historical Society Board of Trustees, Rick Reese, and sitting next to him, my fellow board member, Glenn Louie. Tonight's program, America in Retreat, The New Isolation and the Coming Global Disorder, is a part of the Bernard and Irene Schwartz Distinguished Speaker Series. And as always, it is a pleasure to thank Mr. Schwartz for his support, which has enabled us to invite so many prominent authors and historians to New York Historical. The program tonight will last about an hour, and it's going to include a question and answer session. Audience members are going to be invited to come up and speak at uh, microphones, which will be placed in the two aisles. And we would like to ask you to please speak up when you come to those microphones, um, not just so that everyone in the audience can hear you, but we do this as a podcast, and we'd like everyone who is listening at home on their computers to be able to hear you. Following the program, please join us for a book signing with Brett Stevens, whose books will be available for purchase in our museum store right outside this door. So, on to our speakers. We are so pleased to welcome Brett Stevens to the New York Historical Society. I did not want to make an editorial comment, but I've gotten permission from one of our Chairman's Council members who said I can say it on his behalf. We are so excited to open the Wall Street Journal and read an op-ed piece with enthusiasm. So, Brett Stevens, we thank you for that. In 2013, Brett Stevens won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary for his 2012 col col columns in the journal. He was previously editor-in-chief of the Jerusalem Post and has written for foreign affairs and commentary, among other publications. He has won several awards for his work as a journalist, including the 2008 Eric Brindell Award for Excellence in Opinion Journalism and the 2010 Bastiat Prize. His new book is entitled, this should sound familiar, America in Retreat, The New Isolationism and the Coming Global Disorder. Moderating tonight's discussion is Max Boot, 
Jean J. Kirkpatrick, Senior Fellow in National Security Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. One of America's leading military historians and foreign policy analysts, Mr. Boot is also a regular contributor to the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and many other publications. He has lectured widely at military schools, advised military commanders in Iraq and Afghanistan, and is the author of two widely acclaimed books on military history, both of which have been assigned reading by the military services. His most recent book is Invisible Armies, an epic history of guerrilla warfare from ancient times to the present. Before we begin, I would ask you to please turn off your cell phones and any other electronic devices, and please know that photography is not permitted in the auditorium except by New York Historical Society photographers. And with that, I ask you to join me in welcoming our speakers, Brett Stevens and Max Booth. I get to sit to the left of Brett. I don't usually get to be on the left of somebody, so this is a great position for me to be in. And thank you very much. Oh, I'm supposed to be on the right? We're supposed to switch? The more characteristic position, all right. I got my hopes up prematurely. It happens. All right, now that I'm in my accustomed rightward corner here. Uh, thank you very much, Pam, for that great introduction, and thanks to everybody associated with the New York Historical Society for putting together such a tremendous institution. And it's truly an honor for me uh, to be back on this uh, stage with all of you, and thank you for coming out. I know there's not much to talk about in the realm of foreign policy, but we'll try to do our best in the next hour or so. Uh, and it's truly a, a, a privilege, lastly, let me say, to be on a stage with somebody I admire as much as I admire Brett, and not least because he has had to overcome so many obstacles in the course of his august and distinguished career the worst and, and most formidable obstacle of all, of course, being the fact that he had to work for me at one point at the Wall Street Journal early on in his career. But he overcame that, and uh, he's, he hasn't done too badly for himself. The scars are psychological. I know, but, but you hide them well, and I admire you for it. Uh, let me just say that I hope all of you, every week, pick up the Wall Street Journal, either in paper or iPad or, or some other form, and, and read Brett's Global View column, which in spite of the fact that it received a Pulitzer, is must-reading. And really, tremendous, a, a tremendous achievement, and one that I truly and greatly admire. And as somebody who once, for a couple of years, wrote a weekly column myself, I have to say it's one of the hardest uh, performances to pull off to do that every single week on deadline, to be consistently interesting and provocative. And Brett manages it each and every single week, and that's truly an impressive achievement. And you can get a distillation of, of some of Brett's uh, wisdom and insights in this fine book, which I hold in my hands and which will be available for signing outside after the conclusion of this forum. And although you may not have realized this, by agreeing to be here, you have also obligated yourself to buy a copy of this book. <laughs> and if you don't do that, there are actually burly security guards outside who will prevent you from leaving. So I strongly encourage you to, to, uh, to buy it and to read it. And it is not an onerous chore. It's actually a fast read and it's a great read. And it really is very well written. It covers a wide range of, of, uh, of insights into foreign policy combined with Brett's personal experiences in places like Afghanistan and elsewhere. So it's, it's really not only an important read, I think, but also a very enjoyable one, and I would strongly commend it to you. Now, to begin our conversation, before we get into the meat of, of the book and, and the meat of the news, which we're going to discuss in a minute, just 
hold on for a second. I want to ask a, a little question to set the stage, which is to ask Brett uh, to reflect a little bit on this personal journey which brought him to this stage, to writing this book, to writing this terrific column as he does uh, every single week. Why do you think you, you developed the interest that you did and the worldview that you developed, however you want to characterize it? Um, well, first of all, let me just say what a, a very great honor it is to be here. Um, also, uh, this place is so astonishing. I had the uh, opportunity about four or five years ago to visit it when it was still being remodeled, and it was, um, it was totally gutted, and to see what a glorious space you've made of the historical society and how um, impressive the exhibitions are and terrific the programming is, is, is wonderful. You've, you've, brought a great, uh, you've brought a great New York institution to life, so I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of this, and I'm particularly grateful to you uh, to, uh, uh, to indulge me with, by, by this conversation. Um, I have, uh, I, I sometimes think about my grandfather who when he changed his name from Ehrlich as he was known as a child in what used to be called Bessarabia to Stevens, uh, that not only did he change his name, but he, he chose the waspiest name uh, imaginable. And I always, I always thought, I never knew my grandfather, but I always thought of that PH was a particularly nice, uh, uh, particularly nice touch. Um, but um, I was born to a, um, uh, a father who had himself been born for a variety of reasons in uh, Mexico City, and to a mother who had been uh, born into a, a Jewish family in Nazi-occupied Europe in 1940 and had spent uh, the early parts of her life uh, in, uh, uh, in Milano under the thumbs of, the, thumbs of the Nazis and had only come to the United States as a, uh, as a 10-year-old child after, uh, after the war. So people sort of assume I have this kind of New England pedigree, which is the very opposite of the truth, you know, part Mexican, part Jewish. Uh, um, and uh, when I was an infant, I, um, I, my father moved us to uh, Mexico City, where I was, in fact, uh, raised. I grew up speaking Spanish alongside of, uh, uh, alongside of English for a while. Spanish was probably my first language. But I was always aware that I was an American citizen uh, or an American living in Mexico. And when you live as an American, when you grow up as an outsider to the US, I think you come to see the United States in a slightly different way than you would if you were raised here. Uh, we used to, as a family, take uh, about once a year, we would get in the back of my father's station wagon, and we'd drive up to McAllen, Texas. And for the longest time, McAllen, Texas was my idea of heaven on earth. Uh, now, I, I haven't been back to McAllen since I was a child, but I've always imagined that McAllen must be like nothing to write home about. I, the people have told me this. But you crossed the border, and you went from these uh, dusty, remote Mexican towns into a society where if you turned on the tap and you put your glass under the tap, you could drink from it. And that always struck me as astonishing. It struck me as uh, astonishing that you could go to movie theaters and you wouldn't have to first be subjected to half, half an hour of Mexican government propaganda uh, uh, during, uh, during the movies. All sorts of very mundane things about American life struck me very early on as being quite extraordinary. And I think it gives you a perspective about this country and a love for this country that you might not get when you don't think twice about turning on the tap and, and uh, uh, drinking the water. Uh, so I was 
always kind of struck uh, by, if I may say so, the exceptionalism of the United States. This just doesn't happen in, um, in other places. I went to uh, schools in the United States. I also went to uh, graduate school in Britain. By the way, I should mention the fact, one of the things that's amusing, I went to the University of Chicago, a truly great university, and then I went to graduate school in, uh, at the London School of Economics, and people used to say, oh, the London School of Economics, very impressive. Uh, it is nothing compared to the University of Chicago. Um, uh, and uh, really seeing the difference between a great American institution and what is purports to be a great European institution was also uh, very striking in terms of the quality of the faculty, the resources, uh, uh, um, you name it. So this too gave me a sense of the uniqueness of the United States. Everything except the football team, in fact. Um, yes, we won't mention the football team, although you know, there's something to be said for at least one great institution, uh, one great university that really could care less about the quality of its uh, of its football team. I think it accounts for uh, the greatness of the University of Chicago. I, I recently learned, by the way, that Columbia has the most wretched football team uh, in the Ivy League, which gave me new respect for uh, Columbia. Hey, you um, should know that my alma mater, Berkeley, also has a pretty lousy football team. But the problem is that they actually try to make it good. It's not deliberate anyway. Go ahead. Um, so that, that, I guess, informs my perspective in one sense. Another sense is, is as follows. I was, I was raised as minimally Jewish as you can be without actually being Unitarian. And, um, uh, and uh, really, somewhat by coincidence, uh, serendipity, uh, bald luck, when I was uh, working for the Wall Street Journal in Europe, I started covering Israel very, uh, very intensively. And out of the blue, I got a phone call one day from the person who was then the publisher who said, would you like to be editor of this newspaper, which I thought was hilarious. Uh, but I said, sure, why not? Um, it wasn't quite as easy as that, but I was offered this, uh, this position. Um, and when I got to Israel, it was the height of the, uh, what was, came to be known as the Second Intifada. And there were bus bombings and suicide attacks and various other kinds of terrorist outrages happening all the time. And I had... Um, it happened that when I was living there, um, there were at least four major suicide bombings within, I would say, a 300-meter radius of my apartment, one of which uh, happened just down the street. I'll never forget it. It was a morning in January of 2004. We, my wife and I heard a boom. Our child, our first child was then just a few months old, not even two months old. I walked down the stairs, walked out, and uh, some of you may know Jerusalem very well. This was a bus on Aza Street, which is a street that's on an incline, not far from the Prime Minister's house. And I was probably the first person on the scene uh, at the bombing. And um, if you have never seen a suicide bombing up close, you frankly have no idea of what that kind of mass carnage uh, means. Uh, to see, not, not to think about 10 dead people, but to see 10 dead people and to see the visible evidence of the quantities of blood that flow when people have been so mutilated is an impression that uh, is indelible. Uh, and it creates something more than just an intellectual commitment. It creates a moral commitment when it comes to telling the story that I spend so much of my time telling, which isn't just the story of Israel versus the Palestinians uh, or the West against uh, much of the, you know, many of the states and the jihadis, Islamists of the, of the Middle East. I think it's a story of civilization against barbarism. And much of what I've 
much of what informs my thinking, quite frankly, when I think about the world, is this civilization or barbarism choice. It's an old choice. I think it was also the same choice when the West confronted the Nazis and when we confronted the Soviet Union. But there's a new barbarism in the world, and that's jihadist terrorism. And you don't really, you can try to understand it, talk about it, dissect it, but you don't really know it until you've seen an attack in the first minutes after something like that has happened. And so that also explains viscerally what accounts for the columns you read, like them or don't like them, in the Wall Street Journal. And what led you to write this particular book? Um, so a few years ago, I was, uh, this was in 2012. In 2012, if you'd asked most Americans, look at the world, what do you think? I think most Americans would have said it's a pretty benign picture. Um, Al-Qaeda is on a path to defeat. We've reset relations with Russia. We have a president who's finally uh, liked in this world as opposed to the last guy. Um, we are pivoting to Asia. Uh, we are, uh, um, and we are above all focusing on uh, nation building at home. And uh, when uh, President Obama was reelected, he was reelected with broad popularity for his foreign policy. I saw, I think, a very different world where if you looked at the Arab world, you saw a world that was unraveling. If you looked at Iran, you saw a country that was marching very confidently toward a nuclear capability undeterred by, um, uh, by efforts to uh, stop it. If you looked at Russia, you saw an irredentist regime bent on uh, reconstituting, not the Soviet Union, but some version of what used to be czarist uh, Russia. If you looked at the Chinese, they were provoking small but significant clashes with all of their neighbors in the South China Sea. If you looked at Europe, you saw a continent stumbling from one recession to the next. And so I wrote an article for Commentary Magazine called uh, The Coming Global Disorder, um, uh, which, uh, um, <laughs> if you want to know how this happens, I wrote this article, and Roger Hertog, who has something to do with the New York Historical Society, called me up and said, I like your article. You should make that a book. And so I went in my dim way, uh, uh, yeah, I'm going to make this a book. Um, as I fleshed out the thesis, it occurred to me that this world of disorder that we were looking at uh, was connected to an American foreign policy that was fundamentally about shrinking America's footprint. That there was a connection between American retreat, this desire to turn inward, to focus on our problems at home, um, and the disorders we were, we were seeing around the world. Um, power, when you create power vacuums, they tend to be filled. And they tend to be filled often by aggressive regimes that spy opportunity and see, uh, see an occasion to revise their regional orders in a way that's much more to their liking. Iran wants to be the dominant player in the Middle East. Russia wants to essentially overturn the results of the, uh, of the, Cold, uh, of the Cold War. The Chinese see themselves much like Wilhelmine Germany as a country seeking its place in the sun and demanding that it be returned to its uh, past position as the kind of the central state of Asia with all the neighboring states as sort of tributaries. Uh, uh, that's, what, that's what happens when you shrink America's footprint. And by the way, it's a movie that the world saw before. That We saw this in the 1920s and 1930s when America turned away from one president who was promising to make the world safe for democracy and instead embarked on a course called normalcy. People often wonder who's the analog of Barack Obama in past history. Well, I would propose to you that one president would be Warren Harding, leaving aside the sex scandals and uh, the other uh, stuff. Um, Warren Harding came to, came to office saying, uh, 
accepting the, the, that the United States was not going to be a part of the world order that was, had been uh, half-heartedly forged at Versailles, uh, seeking to radically reduce America's military commitments, um, becoming uh, enamored of disarmament agreements, the Washington Naval Conference, which was the great arms reduction talks of its days happened under, under his administration, and turning its back on that sort of crusading spirit that had typified the, the, Wilsonian, uh, the Wilsonian period. Well, we kind of know what happens then. We know that when liberal democratic powers will not fulfill their role as guarantors of global order, as world policemen, if you will, um, the, rogues, uh, the rogues take over. Um, and that's, that was what led us to tragedy in 1939. So that's not a world we ought to want to repeat, and that's part of why I wrote this book. Now, the book itself is not just a denunciation of isolationism or neo-isolationism or retreatism or whatever one has to, or whatever one calls it, but it's also an argument, I think, for a positive vision of American foreign policy, which you were just starting to get to in terms of America being the world's policeman. Now, when you say that, it tends to cause a neurologic reaction that people tend to say, well, why should we be policing the world? Shouldn't somebody else be doing it? That's not really our job. Doesn't it cost too much? Isn't it too thankless? Isn't it a fool's errand? How do you answer those critics? Um, so it's very important to distinguish the role of policeman and priest. The, a priest is in the business of saving souls and changing hearts. A policeman is merely the guy who stands right there, just looking around. You know he's there. He has a gun. He's not drawing it. And he's there to reassure the good citizens that they can go about their business uh, unmolested. And he's there to warn by his very presence those who might be tempted to uh, misbehave, the hooligans, the thugs, um, uh, the, the, the teens kind of harassing uh, you know, a woman going about her shopping or whatever. And from time to time, he's there to prevent acts of criminality and wrongdoing. Uh, that's not a bad role. Uh, in the world, and someone has to fulfill it. Now, the question is, well, why does it have to be us? Well, the answer is because we live in the world that we do. Uh, the world, in the world that we live in, uh, we know that the UN cannot fulfill that function. Why? Well, look at what's happening in Syria. We have five members of the Security Council, and two of those members are the most consistent backers of Bashar Assad and his killing machine in Syria. We've seen that play out time and again. So collective security may sound like a great idea if we, were, uh, um, we lived in a world of angels and good-hearted good people, but we don't live in that world. But what's another alternative? Well, you might have the argument that you could have spontaneously generated liberal democratic order. Uh, this was an argument that you find actually for many centuries. You find it in, in Kant, uh, uh, perpetual peace. Uh, Immanuel Kant makes this argument. Montesquieu makes this argument. Before World War I, it was a very popular argument to make. You had guys like Norman Angel who said that war was just totally outmoded because the more countries trade with one another, uh, the less reason they have to go to war. Well, guess what? In 1914, Germany and Britain were each other's largest trading partners, and that didn't prevent the calamity of World War, uh, World War I. So the concept of sort of spontaneously generated liberal democratic order that then became popular again in the 90s and uh, with, with Frank Fukuyama's book on the end of history, that doesn't work. So then, well, what are some of the other options? Well, what about multilateralism? Well, what are the, what are the other laterals in this new world? Is it Russia? Is it China? Is it Brazil? Um, 
that doesn't actually work out so well. So what you're left with the conclusion is, in fact, it's only the United States that has the will and the wherewithal to police a decent world order. Does it do it well always? No. Is it expensive? Yes. Are the alternatives better? No, they're not. So you have to ask yourself, is this the world you want to live in? Well, it's the world we've been living in for many decades, and guess, and, and you know, we haven't had a major war. We haven't had another uh, a calamity. Uh, we've had a world of unprecedented technological progress and prosperity. You get on a plane, I don't know, here at JFK, you fly over to Tokyo or you fly to Hong Kong, you fly to London, you stick your ATM machine, a card in the machine, and lo and behold, you get currency. Uh, this is a remarkably seamless, uh, 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 prosperous world when you, when you think of what, where, we, where we could be. And so this world of Pax Americana is a very good world, but it is undergirded by American military presence and might. I guess, let me make one final point, which I think is important, because Iraq always comes up in this. The great mistake in Iraq, in my view, is we went into Iraq, or ought to have gone into Iraq, to make an example of Saddam Hussein, who was truly a wicked dictator and a one-man weapon of mass destruction with more than a million lives on his, uh, the lives of a million people on his, on his hands. We ended up staying in Iraq to make Iraq exemplary. And the difference between a foreign policy that seeks to make examples of the Saddams of the world and a foreign policy that seems, tries to make uh, countries like Iraq exemplary is the difference between a feasible, plausible, realistic, strong, but um, uh, 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 limited foreign policy and a kind of a utopianism that imagines that um, the blessings of liberty can be brought wherever. Um, that turns out not to be the case. There was, some, there was a parallel, oddly, between Bill Clinton's foreign policy and George W. Bush's foreign policy. They were both Rousseauian. They both believed in the inherent goodness of human nature if you just simply carved a path for that goodness to be expressed. And Clinton wanted to do it with peace processes, and Bush wanted to do it with a freedom agenda. And it... In my view, and this is one of the arguments I make in the book, both were misbegotten enterprises. Serious American foreign policy begins with the founder's view which, of human nature, which is a fairly dim view of human nature. It doesn't imagine that we live in a world of angels. It imagines that we live in a world of contentious, ambitious uh, um, seekers of, of power and fame and wealth, and you have to find a way to manage that. And a, the, a smart American foreign policy uh, operates on that founder's view. But are you suggesting that we should do operations like uh, Operation uh, Iraqi Freedom, but basically leave after Saddam has been toppled? I mean, what happens after an existing regime no longer exists? Who's going to control the terrain that lies there? Well, you get all sorts of problems. Um, I mean, now the, the problem with the Iraq uh, story is that then we remained. And then after we had the surge, we committed, we'd invested uh, all of this treasure, um, you wanted to make good on the investment that you had made. Uh, but in my view, the biggest mistake we made in Iraq was installing Jerry Bremer and uh, attempting to adopt a kind of year zero approach to Iraqi governance where we disbanded the army as quickly as possible um, and we, uh, we, uh, we went through the debathification uh, uh, process. And we set about trying to tell the Iraqis how to govern themselves. I think that was the mother of all sins. 
Um, we should have quickly allowed the Iraqis to determine what kind of future they want. Now, this comes in, up against the argument that they say, well, you know, this, there's a pottery barn rule in foreign policy. You, you break it, you own it. Well, first of all, we didn't break Iraq. Saddam Hussein broke Iraq. But secondly, I'm not sure that's a good rule in foreign policy. Saddam Hussein was a 25-year major foreign policy crisis for the entire world. And at some point, that had to be brought to an end. But I think it's a mistake to then say, and then after that, once we bring it to an end, the only possible way in which we can leave Iraq is as this functioning model democracy. You are going to leave messes in your wake in foreign policy. And sometimes the messes will, will sort themselves out. And sometimes maybe you're going to have to go in. The United States found itself constantly having to intervene in, in Latin America and South America. But that seems to be more a more sustainable foreign policy than saying, we are going to embark on a 10-year, trillion-dollar adventure, which not only is going to be impossible to sustain because of the cultural realities of Iraq, but equally impossible to sustain because of the political realities of the United States. Americans don't have an appetite for 10-year efforts to stand up um, essentially unimportant societies like, like, the Iraqi, uh, like, like Iraq. This was not Germany after the Second World War, or Japan after the Second World War. So you have to appreciate, and this is one of the arguments that I make in the book, there are limits to American power. You have to exercise that power, but you have to exercise it knowing that you're not going to simply reconstitute the countries you are dealing with in America's image. That's a tragic reality, but it's one I think we ought to we ought to accept. The interest that ought to be served here is the American interest, not you know, the interests of liberal democracy or, or the, you know, some universal good. Bush, Bush made a terrible mistake when he decided that um, the goal, when the Bush doctrine went from being a policy of keeping our nightmares at bay, of making sure that the worst that could happen doesn't happen, to being a policy of making our dreams come true. When you get into foreign policy of making dreams come true, you're going to get into trouble very quickly. And too much American foreign policy, solving the Israeli-Palestinian dilemma, for example, that's dream come true territory, right? Um, peace processes, as the Clinton administration was conducting in Sierra Leone and Eritrea and Ethiopia and so on, that's all dreams come true land. But what are, our, what are the nightmares that we seek to stop? I would say that if I were the president, or the next president. I'll be, I am, I am and will be. I am not and will not be. Um, uh, it's not too late to throw your hat into the ring. Um, uh, I would say, well, what are the things that the United States needs to prevent? And that's my foreign policy. Number one, Iran's nuclearization. Number two, a Russia that seeks to break the back of NATO by seizing one of the Baltic states. That's, that, that's the second thing. Number three, the outbreak of war through some kind of incident in the South China Sea. That's the third thing. Uh, number four, the acquisition of uh, weapons of mass destruction by a group like ISIS or other jihadist groups. So organize your foreign policy or your foreign policy priorities around those things, not about what this administration is doing, which is peace process, uh, climate change negotiations, all this kind of stuff that isn't focused very narrowly on saying, this is what we can't allow to happen, and we're not going to allow it to happen, and all of our resources, or the great bulk of our resources, will be devoted to that. The real problem with that foreign policy, I would argue, Max, is it's not a very inspirational vision. 
Um, it's hard to tell Americans, you know, your job is to be the world's cop and to make sure that the worst doesn't happen. You know, Americans like to be involved in crusades for freedom, right? It's, it's, a, it's, a, better, it's a better foreign policy sell, at least while we're in the mood to be in a crusade uh, for freedom. But a sustainable and sober foreign policy, and I think a, real conserv a truly conservative foreign policy, which is what I'm offering in this book, um, uh, takes a very different view. Uh, it's, it's not about that, the inspiration piece. It's about the prudence piece. I just push back a little bit on your opposition to nation building, because if you think about, for example, fighting groups like ISIS or the Taliban, the issue becomes, well, it's easy enough to kill their leaders. We do that all the time, and our special operators are very, very good at that. But the problem is, if you don't actually control, or if somebody friendly to you doesn't actually control the terrain on which they operate, it's very easy for them to reconstitute themselves, as in fact Hezbollah and Hamas have done after losing a lot of their leaders to Israeli airstrikes. And so it seems to me that the, the only way to truly defeat those groups in the long term is to create institutions on the ground, hard as that may be in countries like Iraq or Afghanistan that are, able, that are not necessarily going to bring about model Jeffersonian democracy, but can at least police their territory in a minimalist sort of way and prevent terrorists from establishing enclaves. So don't we have an interest in supporting local institutions that can do that? Isn't that necessary in order to avert the horrors that we see from the rise of this jihadist state in the middle of the Middle East? Well, I mean, a, a few points I think are worth, are, are worth making. Um, number one, in that kind of fight, uh, a guy like Mubarak uh, serves perfectly well. Um, or now I guess it would be General uh, Sisi, who we should, I think, be making an ally of even if his um, democratic credentials and certainly his credentials as a human rights activist are, um, are so far um, uh, uh, yet to be fleshed out to say... Um, uh, uh, it might be a while before they're fully fleshed out. But, but look, at, look, at, look at the case of Hamas in Gaza. Israel was faced with a very difficult choice. You have um, uh, the very limited option of just trying to prevent these attacks from taking place through the tunnels, through the use of um, uh, rockets and, and mortar fire. Uh, that's what Israel ended up doing. Then you have the extreme option of reoccupying Gaza and reconstituting their institutions. Um, and then you have what would have been my preferred option, a middle option, which was a much tougher military campaign that would have decapitated Hamas, uh, that would have gotten rid of Ismail Khania and the entire structure of, of that organization that was in a cowardly way hiding in the central hospital of Gaza. But the idea that Israel should have then reoccupied Gaza itself seems to me to be exchanging uh, one problem for a much worse problem. You know, uh, I was doing a panel with Michael Oren the other day, uh, and he said something very interesting. You know, those who know Israeli history know that the period between 1967 and 1973 is known as the War of Attrition because there was this tit-for-tat with um, Egypt. But he made the point, you know, Israel's whole history is the War of Attrition. All of the wars that we think of as independent wars, 56, 67, 73, 82, all of these are just sort of high points in one unending war of attrition in which Israel goes in, it hits them, uh, but it doesn't remake their societies. And in the meantime, Israel, by the way, becomes, goes from this tiny, impoverished backwater state to a much more sophisticated, mature, uh, powerful state. I think that's what we will look at. I mean, if, if I had my druthers in foreign policy, that's what we would do 
in the Middle East. You have to hit ISIS and you have to hit them. You have to kick them so hard they'll at least remember it. But don't think you're going to eradicate jihadism. Don't think you're going you're gonna to solve the problems of Islamic fundamentalism for Muslims. Muslims have to solve the problem of Islamic fundamentalism. What we can do is make very clear that there are devastating consequences and they will lose their lives if they attempt to establish caliphates, uh, seize cities, and, and do what, what they do. But we have to come to some reckoning that we are not going in our lifetime to solve a civilizational problem that is hundreds of years in the making. We're not going to do that. What we can do, be do best is push back against that and push back against it in a way that hopefully makes a new generation of Muslims think this whole jihad business isn't working for us. We have to change. Well, let's talk about uh, a couple of uh, issues in the news, and we would probably be run off the stage if we didn't. But let me, let me bring up to you uh, the, the firing of uh, Chuck Hagel today. Is that a sign that President Obama is rethinking this policy of America in retreat that you, you denounce in the book? I wish it were. Um, I mean, I, I must have written about 16,000 editorials and columns denouncing Hegel's uh, nomination for, for the position. Uh, and, um, and finally, Obama's listening to you. <laughs> it took a while to get around Valerie Jarrett but uh, 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 on that one. Well, what was interesting at the time, when, when it, it's, if, if you want to amuse yourselves this evening, um, go read the encomia for Chuck Hagel in much of the left of center press when he was, um, when he was uh, nominated for, uh, uh, for, for the position. What a brilliant guy he was. He was the new Eisenhower. Uh, uh, Peter Beinart said, I think he was the most inspired or consequential choice of uh, Obama's entire administration. Not quite. Um, uh, look, uh, I, I think that Obama needs to fire his entire national security team. Um, uh, we have, one of the problems with this, this team is we have what a colleague of mine called a flock of doves. Uh, it's all okay to have some doves in your, in your security cabinet, but have some hawks too. Um, in the first, in Obama's first term, you had Hillary, who was more hawkish than the president, you had Gates, who was definitely a lot more hawkish. You had Petraeus, first as a commander and then a CIA director. So you had a kind of a, uh, an opportunity for more than just the dovish view to be expressed. Now in John Kerry, uh, uh, Susan Rice, uh, then Chuck Hagel, uh, and the entire national security apparatus, Wendy Sherman leading the, the negotiations with Iran, uh, you had this kind of monotone view. Now, I'll be interested to see who Obama picks, and uh, I have my own choice of who he should pick uh, if, I mean, I, I'm dreaming, but I think he should pick someone like Joe Lieberman uh, to, uh, uh, to succeed him. Uh, uh, I suggested that on Twitter today, and the Twitter sphere went, went berserk. Well, you can hear in the audience very, uh, very different uh, reactions to that. But you need someone who's going to inspire at least a little second-guessing second and a certain sense of respect uh, in the Kremlin and in the compounds of the Ayatollahs and in the compounds of the leadership in Beijing. Uh, someone who's going to make them think, hmm, this president is toughening up. Uh, we are, one of the things that 
routinely strikes me as very worrisome in conversations with uh, diplomats around the world is number one, among our allies, how little faith our traditional allies, and I'm not talking just about the Israelis, I'm talking about allies in Eastern Europe uh, and, in, and in the Far East, uh, how little faith they have in this administration that it's willing to make good on its commitments. Um, and similarly, when you talk, and I do talk to some of the adversaries, how much contempt they have for the administration, a sense that this, this president is uh, uh, excessively self-infatuated and that he's fundamentally weak. A guy like Vladimir Putin, you know, most of you, I don't know, your lawyers, your doctors, your whatever, you have your schooling, and your schooling accounts for your thinking. Vladimir Putin went to the school of KGB. In the school of KGB, what you learn to do is you learn to spot weak people, and you learn to squash them. That's Vladimir Putin's training. And I think that's what Vladimir Putin, oh, that's his calculation with this administration, that this president is weak, that he really doesn't want to stand up to an incursion, that he wants nothing more than to look away. Uh, and that's Putin's opportunity to strike. So I think you're looking at two years where some of our adversaries are going to be thinking, well, I have a two-year window of having a uh, weak adversary in the White House, and that scares me. I'd encourage those of you who are interested in asking questions to line up at one of the two microphones <laughs> here. And while you do that, I'm going to ask one final question to Brett before turning it over to all of you, which is the other bit of news today, obviously having to do with the seventh-month extension of the deadline for negotiating with Iran. Uh, good news or bad news? Is there a case to be made as the Washington Post editorialized that an extension is better than a bad deal? Um, well, look, uh, you'll read my column about it uh, tomorrow. Uh, but you got a preview right here and right but, now. But here, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spoil the surprise. Uh, look, I, th I think this is a sham negotiation. Now, the, I heard Secretary Kerry insisting uh, in Vienna earlier today that the Iranians have abided by their commitments. But that's just flatly contradicted by what the Director General of the International Atomic Energy Agency said just the other day, that the Iranians continue to stonewall on uh, uh, giving weapons inspe or UN inspectors access to their weapons sites. And the Iranian method is their, I should say Rouhani's method, is he's prepared to make concessions on the technologies that Iran has already perfected but he won't make concessions on the technologies Iran has yet to perfect. So the Iranians now know how to enrich uranium. So they're perfectly happy to have a freeze or to essentially put that program in the freezer. It can always be brought out and very quickly thawed, if you will. Um, but they're still working on the weaponization aspect of a bomb, and that's what they aren't allowing us to, do, uh, to see. And that's what continues uh, in this process in which we're pretending to negotiate. And I, I'm bothered by this administration that seems to want to cover up to the American people just how scrupulously the Iranians have abided by their commitments, not just the commitments in the, in the interim agreement, but their broader commitments to the international uh, community. Uh, you know, we are, we, are, we are simply stalling and allowing a sanctions regime to slowly crumble and allowing the Iranians to continue to work on their nuclearization efforts. They have been doing this for 12 years. It was 12 years ago that we discovered that Iran had been lying to us and had developed nuclear facilities in secret. So people think, oh, well, let's give negotiations a chance. By all means, it's been 12 years. And they continue to stonewall, and they continue to lie, and they continue to build their nuclear capabilities. 
And that worries me a great deal, and it should worry all of us. And by the way, it should worry you whether you're liberal or conservative, and maybe especially if you're liberal. And let me close with this before we go to questions. A regime that can take a stone in its right hand and stone a woman to death should never get anywhere close to a nuclear weapon in its left hand to do likewise with its neighbors. You know, we don't worry about Francois Hollande having his finger on the button. He has his finger on other buttons. Um, <laughs> but we do worry about the Iranians because of the special character of this regime. We worry about it because of the way it treats its women, the way it treats its minorities, the way it treats its gay people, the way it treats uh, its, its dissidents. That should tell us something about this regime. We, you, you, can judge the, the, you can judge what a regime intends to do to its neighbors by the way it treats its own people. And bear that in mind when you think about this nuclear process. Sir. You, uh... By the way, I applaud you as well. I'm a big fan. But they were actually you, applauding you, in advance for your you, question. You talk about the, uh, the United States as being the solitary world's policeman. Um, but what about potential allies? Can't we make some potential allies to go down that road with us, potentially Egypt? has some type of a vested interest in the Middle East. Uh, what about Australia? And I mean, can't we build some alliances that really matter instead of being the solitary world policeman? Yes, and, and I'm sorry if I gave you the impression that we should uh, uh, dismiss allies when they want to be our friends. Uh, that's, that's, core, that's a core function of, of any, of any great, uh, great power knowing that we're not always going to be able to get all sorts of people on our side for whatever, uh, whatever the task at hand may be. Um, uh, one of the things I write about in my book is I, I talk about the need for us to adopt internationally what the policing techniques that were adopted so successfully in, the United, in New York City, as a matter of fact, so-called broken windows policing, which was about uh, um, preventing crime at the lowest levels and more about enforcing order than uh, reacting to crime, reacting to disorder. Uh, preventing an environment where people feel anything goes and they can do anything we, they want. And one of the things I fear in the world today is we're entering into a kind of broken windows world where Bashar Assad feels like he can do whatever he, want to do, whatever he wants to do and Putin feels the same way and so forth and so on. And for that, part of, part of the process is you need a certain amount of community buy-in. You want your allies to feel like it's worth being on your side. One of Machiavelli's great lines is, you know, a prince needs to develop a reputation as a firm friend and a thorough foe. And just as I'm worried about, um, uh, uh, just as I'm worried about uh, rogue regimes not seeing us as a credible enemy, I'm worried too about our traditional allies not seeing us as a credible friend. So how do we reassure them that our guarantees are good? When we do that, it becomes easier to bring them along in coalitions that we want, where, where, where we need their help. It was very difficult to bring the Saudis into the fight against ISIS because we had squandered so much credibility with the Saudis. We basically had to go begging to, uh, uh, to the Saudis, uh, to Riyadh and, 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 the U, and, and the UAE, to get them to, to participate in this. But yes, we should be insisting to the Europeans, to NATO members, the NATO charter says you need to spend 2% of GDP on defense. Only the UK, Estonia, and Greece currently meet that target. 
We need to, we need to insist that they do so. Uh, and we need to be, where, where we can, we need to partner with countries like Israel, countries like Taiwan, countries like Japan. I mean, we do this all the time. But that, again, depends on the credibility of American leadership. Uh, these countries won't spontaneously step up unless we are in the lead, and we find that time and again. Until the United States takes this lead from behind vision, I'm sorry it's become a, a bit of a cliche and maybe unfairly so for the administration, but it contains its grain of truth. This lead from behind approach doesn't work. It only works when the United States takes a stand, says this is what we're gonna do, and you're gonna follow us, and you're gonna be partners in a successful enterprise. Well, we have a lot of questions here, and we only have about 10 minutes, so what I'd like to do is to take two at a time. So the gentleman in the bow tie first, and then we'll take one over there and then have Brett answer. Um, thank you for a very clear and, and great exposition. I had one problem with one of the things you said. Just that, one? Just one, believe me. And that is your um, statement that we really can't do much to create democracies and freedom in, in those countries, such as Iraq and Afghanistan, I think you were pointing out. And you mentioned in passing, and distinguished, but didn't really distinguish, what we did in Japan and Germany. After all, Japan had suicide bombers too. And we have ended up with democracies, freedom, and strong supporting allies there. Why can't we do that elsewhere? Okay, hold on, sir. Uh, first, I'd just like to agree with your point that the University of Chicago is an example of the greatness <laughs> of the United States. Um, but, but second, I, I would like to uh, uh, you know, ask how uh, our, 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 our position in the world uh, has changed is over the last 20 years as a percentage of GDP, we've gone from the, the you know, the, over half of the global economy to, you know, we're shrinking to sub a quarter. Um, and, and as a, a debt to GDP, we're at the highest level uh, that we've been since the end of World War II uh, with uh, uh, trends saying that we're, things are going to get worse as the demographics and Social Security and entitlements haven't been taken care so of. You're so. basically asking, can we afford to be the global cop, if I understand you correctly? The, the yes. Okay. Right. <laughs> All right. Um, uh, two really marvelous questions. I don't want to give the impression that I am just so uh, uh, downcast about the prospects for democratization that I, don't, I simply don't uh, believe in it. But there's a very big difference between, uh, say, a Japan and a Germany after their utter devastation in the Second World War and in Iraq and uh, Afghanistan. Um, and it would be a whole speech to go into the differences, but. Make, let me make one important point. Uh, this is less true of Japan, but it is true in Germany. What we have found is that the equation, the, the direction of liberalism and democracy tends to go from liberal culture to democratic uh, institutions. But we aren't so successful going from democratic institutions to liberal cultures. You know, the idea was, somehow the Bush administration had this idea, say you, you get an electoral process in, let's say, uh, the Palestinian Authority. Well, once you have an electoral process, Hamas and Fatah, all these guys have to play by the rules and they have to learn how to uh, uh, you know, transition from one party to the next. And so democracy by itself is conducive to creating liberal values in the people who participate in democracy. That turns out not to be true. Uh, we have all kinds of examples of democratic processes leading to illiberal outcomes, like 
an election in Egypt where the Muslim Brotherhood wins and an election in the Palestinian Authority where Hamas wins. And by the way, an election some people may uh, have lived through uh, um, in Germany where uh, the Nazi party wins. So uh, you want, democratization tends to work well where there are some pre-existing liberal cultural values that then can be actualized in a democratic process. Right? So that worked in Poland because there was a residual memory of, uh, of you know, democratic processes. It was part of a culture which participated in the great sort of European uh, ideas of enlightenment and liberalism. Much harder to do in a place like Iraq uh, where people will vote along strictly sectarian lines and they will vote for parties with ideologies that are about denying other people their rights and in fact denying themselves their rights. This is a very mysterious process. Jean-Francois Ravel called it the totalitarian temptation. Why some people don't simply seek to exercise tyranny over others, but they want to have tyranny being exercised over them. Uh, a curious, uh, curious process. So uh, I think we need to temper our, I think the examples of Eastern Europe from the 19, uh, late ni from 89 and the early 1990s and the examples of Germany and Japan, we need to consider those very carefully before we apply them to societies like Iraq and Afghanistan. Now, on your point, I'm very glad you asked that. I called my book America in Retreat. Retreat is a policy choice. I did not call my book America in Decline. Decline is something that happens for forces that are, for reasons that are often beyond the reach of ordinary politics to fix. And take a country like Japan, which I do think is in decline. Uh, there are demographic reasons for it. It's got an incredibly, you know, aging population, no replacement rates. And there's a big problem in Japan, which is that the very idea of Japanese-ness resists what Japan needs to do to save itself, which is have immigration. Japan doesn't want to have immigrants because that would somehow, if you will, deracinate the Japanese nation. Well, that's problematic for Japan that they can't overcome this basic hurdle. Now, the United States is a different story. I mean, I know you mentioned these problems and these points, and as Adam Smith said, there's a lot of ruin in a nation. There always has been. But the United States uniquely has a capability for self-regeneration, renewal, that I think doesn't exist uh, anywhere else. Um, and just ask yourself, 30 years from now, you know, imagine an economic historian who's not Paul Krugman, 30 years from now, <laughs> uh, 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 saying, well, what were the great innovations of the early 21st century? Okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna guess. One would say, well, you know, to everyone's surprise, we had this incredible energy revolution where by using these two technologies in combination, we realized we had a superabundance here in North America of, um, of fossil fuels. And it was able to give us strategic options and, and, and uh, uh, opportunities that we never, economic opportunities we never could have thought of. Fracking could only have happened in the United States. Only have happened in the United States. Why? Because only in the United States do we have subsoil rights. Private property owners own the stuff underneath their property. Not true anywhere else. Only in the United States do you have the kind of federalism that means that they can frack in Pennsylvania even if they can't yet frack in New York. Only in the United States do you have that incredible culture of wildcatting and entrepreneurialism where a guy like George Mitchell, son of a Greek uh, goat herder, comes to the United States uh, and dies one of the richest men in the world by completely defying conventional wisdom about fracking. Another innovation, social media. 
Could social media have happened in China? Could it have happened in any repressive autocratic society that bans people from saying all kinds of things, that bans that spontaneous generation, that, uh, that innovation? Couldn't have happened there. You know, the 1970s were also a period of very profound pessimism, and I should add conservative pessimism, about the prospects of the United States. Yet it was somehow in the 1970s that Microsoft was founded, and Oracle was founded, and uh, Apple was founded, and Home Depot was founded. And the promise of America, this is the difference between a country like America and China. In China, you, you see it's very visible, the things that they want to show off about. They make, the regime is very good at advertising its strengths and hiding its weaknesses. Every open society is the opposite. It's very good of, at obsessing about its weaknesses and forgetting its strengths, like turning on the tap and getting clean drinking water, for example. But in the United States today, it's not just the Zuckerbergs and, and, and uh, the Gateses of the world. There's someone in some cubicle who's a nobody right now, okay, who in three years is going to be all anyone can talk about. Um, and that's the miracle of the United States. This is why this country is so exceptional. And this is why I'm not in doubt about the outcome when it comes to these conflicts in the world. The question is the price we pay for bad policy decisions. Okay, we are rapidly running out of time here, but let me try to take a few more questions as quickly as possible. Very interested in lighting conversation. I'd like to know, bringing it back here to our hemisphere, uh, we've talked about Europe, we've talked about Asia, we've talked about the Middle East. Recently, there have been a, reports in the paper about the Iranians furthering their military contacts in South America, most particularly Cuba and Venezuela. Uh, the def uh, Soviet Defense Ministry has recently announced after a long hiatus, that they're going to resume combat military patrols over the Caribbean and the Gulf of Mexico. And John Kerry has... I don't want to be rude, but I, yes. I think we got the question, which is about threats in South America and especially right. Iranian influence. Let me try another one. I'd like to take the opposite example of uh, post-World War II, in that we've seen Bush in Iraq and, uh, and Obama in the Arab Spring coming out with the same results of cutting off the heads of the dictators and having chaos because you don't have cohesive nations, but you have, um, you, you have uh, tribes. And that maybe post-World War II of Roosevelt and Churchill of putting in our dictators to run these, these unrealistic boundaries that they have was a better way of having a, f a going forward foreign policy rather than trying to create democracy. Let me, and let's try really fast one final, well, they're taking away the microphone, so I guess we won't try one final question. Uh, sir. Uh, yeah, I have a very quick question. I uh, agree with you in theory, but I think what you're forgetting about is we have a deficit of $18 trillion. Okay. To, to go on this, this uh, journey that you're outlining, which I think is a very interesting. Are we going to go to $36 trillion? Okay. We have an infrastructure. Okay. Another question about the cost of okay. having a global cop. Very quickly, uh, I'll, I'll go through these very quickly. Um, we now spend uh, less of a percent of our GDP on defense than we have at almost any time in the post-war period. We spend 3.5% of GDP on defense. Uh, I mean, we have all kinds of uh, fiscal problems, but they are not on account of defense spending. They're on account of an entitlement problem, or entitlements problem. We also have an entitlement problem. But, uh, um, and look, look at Europe, okay? Europe is a perfect case of what happens when you constantly try to balance the budget on the back of a defense budget. Europe is both vastly more indebted than we are uh, today, um, and they have uh, no defense to speak of. Uh, so um, you, the real question is, 
what are the costs to the United States if we allow the disorders that we're beginning to see around the world get worse and worse and worse? Because at some point, we will have to deal with them, just as we discovered in the 1930s and uh, 1920s and 1930s. My argument to you is better to deal with it when Hitler tries, it, tries to seize the Rhineland in 36, when you can stop it, than wait on events and then find yourself facing a catastrophe uh, uh, later on. Uh, to the gentleman who said, um, basically, I think you were quoting uh, FDR's reputed wonderful line, you know, he's a son of a bitch, but he's our son of a bitch. He was speaking about Somoza in, uh, uh, in Nicaragua. I think that's not a bad way of, uh, of uh, having a foreign policy. <coughs> Look, you always want a democracy. You always want countries that are going to share your values, right? You always want an Israel or an Estonia or whatever, um, but sometimes you find yourself with a Mubarak or a Sisi um, or other strong men around the world. And, you know, I, I sometimes people ask me, well, you know, you're a neocon. I call myself a paleo-neocon because Gene Kirkpatrick's great article in Commentary in 1979 said, better accept the authoritarians who are on your side than the totalitarians who are, uh, who are uh, uh, against you. And then I guess the gentleman asked about South America, and yes, we should, we should worry about it. The ties, I started writing about the ties between Venezuela and Iran five or six years ago. They are extensive, and they are serious. I mean, it's not, there's a certain right-wing fever swamp, which is like Hezbollah is assembling armies just south of Tijuana, and we, we'd better get them. But there's a vast network of influence, especially in Venezuela, but also places like Ecuador uh, uh, and Bolivia, where mysteriously the Iranian foreign minister visited, uh, that, that, uh, that ought, to, uh, ought, to seriously, uh, ought to seriously concern us. Um, I guess I would say just, you know, on a final note, I wrote this book. Well, I wrote this book for all of you to buy and buy for all of your relatives so that I may live in prosperity and send my children to the University of Chicago. Um, uh, but I really wrote this book uh, with a view towards the next crop of people who, on the Democratic side and the Republican side, um, want a foreign policy. And I think Americans understand that the porridge of the Bush administration was too hot and the porridge of the Obama administration is too cold. And they want the Goldilocks recipe. This is the Goldilocks recipe. There it is. 